You may have felt like uh, this semester has been the, uh, um, the, the traveling evangelist semester where you just get a new teacher every week. I felt the, the same way um, with uh, COVID and all of, of that. Uh, there wasn't a lot of traveling for about two years and it just really seemed to open like a, uh, like a flood here at the end of last year, first of this year. Um, but, uh, but I'm blessed to be here and see you, and um, one of the reasons is that you're still here. Uh, the, one of the, uh, the signs of a healthy church um, is people hang around after the sermon. Uh, there's fellowship that happens. Uh, it's a telltale sign of an issue in a church with whenever the, the last amen is, uh, is announced, people scatter and run to their cars, and if you ever watch at Timberlake uh, after the service, uh, you know, you have to turn the lights out on people. I mean, people are just hanging around, fellowshipping, talking to one another. That is a really good sign. Another really good sign is uh, that the church is so committed to the scriptures and the people are so committed to the authority of the text that in one sense it doesn't matter who brings it. If they're going to bring the word of God, people are going to come and feed on it. And so the fact that... Uh, that you're here, and uh, you know the attendance. I understand fluctuates because of circumstances, but but you're here because you want to hear the word of God, and you're here at six o'clock in the morning to hear the word of God, regardless of whether the senior pastor is here or whether it's uh, it's somebody else. Because the only authority that I have, the only authority that you have, is uh, is God's voice, and whenever God speaks. We want to listen because uh, he's our creator. He sets things in order for us. And as we've said many times, whenever God speaks, stuff happens, doesn't it? Um, He speaks the world into existence. So we're going to pick back up on series 14. I know we've been in a number of places, but we're going to get back to the divorce and remarriage, which is our topic. And I'm just really going to review the whole uh, foundational piece for you. Um, I know where we left off, around where we, we, we left off, but it's been so long, um, and it's such a vital thing. Um, I am, I'm going uh, to go back and go over one and two briefly, and then we'll launch to where, uh, where we were. So I'll give you a little bit longer of, a, you know, of an on-ramp than, uh, than, than normal. But before we get there, open to Psalm 52. So today is the 22nd of March, so you say, why not Psalm 22? Well, it's long, and it's a messianic psalm. It's about um, Christ saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 52 would be the second psalm, if you're reading Psalm on the day, and um, it caught my attention this morning. So we'll read that, and then we'll pray, and then get into our lesson. Psalm 52. For the choir director, uh, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil 
more than good. What a statement. Falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, old deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. That ought to make someone terrified to have that spoken about them. The righteous will see and fear. One of God's purposes in bringing judgment upon unbelievers or mockers It's for the righteous. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold, the man who would not make make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Saw many of those the last couple weeks. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. The sacrifice of a believer is thanksgiving. What can you offer God today? Not bulls and goats and and blood, but sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart, humility, and thanksgiving. It's one of the ways you can worship the Lord today is, is be thankful. I'll give you thanks forever and ever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name. The idea of trusting, regardless of when the deliverance comes, I look to you. For it is good in the presence of your godly ones. You do that before angels and with others. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word. I was preparing for this morning, just reading um, the passages again, fresh. How many times have I read passages about divorce and remarriage and and have preached verse by verse through the the Gospels, have done topical things, but even even after all of that, you teach me new things, you reinforce things, you deepen, you drive the nails deeper into the the wood, and I, I praise you for that. I pray that you would... You would do that for, for all of us this morning, not just to see the topic, but the, the principles behind it, uh, that, um, that you look upon the heart and you desire us to be like you in all of our dealings, including our dealings with other human beings, especially in the relationship that, that is the, the deepest of all human, uh, human relations. I, I pray that you would, you would help us to, to be like like this psalm, we, we, we wouldn't trust in riches. We, we would trust in you. and We would have thankful and humble hearts in all that we do. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be on page 259. 259, and this is a study of divorce and remarriage. You'll probably hear uh, bits and pieces of, uh, of our trip. Um, in Romans 3, 1 through 8, Lord willing, this, uh, this Sunday, I say Lord willing because that was the text for last Sunday. Uh, I, I remember a message that uh, I heard at T4G years ago. Uh, a preacher was, was, was presenting the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I think Brother Rich just did this in, 
in um, uh, boundless. But uh, he, 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 he opened this sermon on the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man of telling a story about whenever he was going to be preaching in Africa, I think it was, and he had everything prepared and Delta uh, delayed, his, delayed his flight and, and someone else ended up preaching. So this is a big conference, a big speaker and um, so he's wrestling in his heart with he's prepared all of this. The people on the ground are wrestling the fact that they're expecting this big name speaker to come, and and he's going to be you know delivering this. The conference is already set. These are the sermons. You know these are the notes. You know we just had a conference and all of the intricacies that go through and making something that happen. And all of that's going to be for naught. And 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 his whole point is the guy that ended up preaching, the Lord used in a very mighty way. And, uh, and so he's talking about, you know, God was sovereign over that. God was sovereign over that. But then he kept saying, but Delta is responsible, you know. <laughs> God is sovereign, but Delta is responsible. And I was reminded of that sermon on uh, Friday and Saturday. God is sovereign, providence, but Delta is responsible for the fact that we were, uh, we were delayed and, and not here. And... Um, and and yet, the Lord has His purposes, you know, in, in that. And um, the the trip was good. We had a it was very successful. Accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. We got to witness and see a bunch of uh, of missions activities, you know, on the ground. Folks that are already there and um, meet with board members. That Rick Holland was there and and Jeff was there. Pastor Jeff was there. We we worked through uh, some of the the intricacies of of the uh, um, the seminary uh, program that will be launched over there, um, Lord willing. And so you'll hear about some of the witnessing pieces because um, uh, Romans 3, 1 through 8, is, is after Paul uh, lays out the guilt of the religious man in chapter 2. So religious people are just as guilty as uh, irreligious people before God. Romans chapter 1, you know... Uh, about the pagan, their immorality, their, their not only their inward but their outward sin, inward sin, outward sin. And then he goes to chapter 2 and he says, you religious people, you might not have the same outward sin that pagans and immoral people do, but you have the same inward sin. So don't think that because you're religious that you're going to escape God's judgment. And then he zooms in, not just religious people or moral people, but the Jew in particular. So after he condemns the religious and Jewish person in chapter 3, then he says, so what advantage does the Jew have? I mean, is it, is, I'm paraphrasing, is, there, is it any big deal that, that they're Jews? If you're a Jew, is, is there any big deal to that? And then he answers that and sets us up for what he'll bring us back to in probably three of the, uh, the most... Um, thorny or at least controversial for some people, chapters in Romans, chapters 9 through, through 11, all about Israel and the sovereignty of God and God's choice of election and salvation. And, and so this passage coming up on this Sunday, verses 1 through 8, is like a little preview. Paul deals with some of those issues, and he's going to flesh that out uh, in a greater way whenever he gets to chapter 9, 10, and, uh, and 11. And uh, so we were with Jewish people, witnessing to Jewish people, hearing their perspectives about uh, 
the fact that they were Jews, which they were quite proud of the fact that they were, were Jews, and so actually got to use Romans 2 a number of times um, in, uh, in dealing with them. So you'll hear about that on, uh, on Sunday. Look, if you would, at um, 259. And I'll just take you back to the, inter- the, uh, the introduction here. I want you to think about this lesson this way, okay? So prepare yourself. This lesson lays a biblical foundation, biblical, puts biblical goggles on, um, and forces you to look at what God says about marriage and divorce and remarriage. So in particular, the covenant of marriage. That's where the Bible always starts. What is God's standard? What does God say? How does God view this? Before you ever get to the exception clauses or before you ever get to the what about this or I know a cousin who did that or this is my circumstance, before you ever get to to those places and, and, and the nuances and asking some of the questions of how do I deal with this living outside of the garden, outside of the, you know, after the fall, how do I deal with that? God lays the foundation first. And that's what Jesus always does. You know, whenever you look at Matthew 19 or 5, Matthew 19, when Jesus is challenged by the scribes and Pharisees, they try to set him up and think, you know, say, well, yeah, you're a great rabbi, but let's see you take on Moses. Um, And, you know, Jesus, you never want to box with with God, as Jerry Falwell used to say. His arms are too long. Um, Here is, uh, what does Jesus do? He takes them back to the beginning. He takes them back to God's view. So that's where we start. What, what, how does God view human beings? And how does God view the, the, the most intimate relationship between human beings? Um, marriage and, 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 and then um, you, you trace that through. Then we get to, okay, so what do we do with these circumstances? So we're laying the foundation and then we'll talk about what to do when that foundation gets, uh, get, gets cracked. And I think that's what he's trying to say in this first, this first uh, paragraph. The study of divorce and remarriage is essential to develop firm convictions surrounding God's perfect design. So in the study, both Old and New Testament passages are examined to firmly plant the church within the biblical framework of marriage. God's people must have a thorough knowledge of the clear teaching in Scripture since one man, one woman, design of marriage for life is clearly under attack in the culture. It doesn't really matter whether it's 2022. It was under attack in Matthew 19, in the day of Jesus. That's the whole point that's, you know, that, that's there. We always want to go to circumstances rather than Scripture whenever it affects us. So that is a natural tendency. We always want to go to the whatabouts and the what-ifs circumstances rather than Scripture. So we go to Scripture first. And again, by way of review, we, we looked at Matthew, I'm sorry, Malachi 2.16. So the first thing, God hates divorce. You know that statement. But the because, I think, is important. Why does He hate it? Because it violates the nature of the one flesh permanent binding covenant between a man and a woman. Marriage was viewed as the most solemn arrangement between two human beings. 
So think back to creation where Jesus takes the, the Pharisees. God created and he created man and he created man in his image to be an image bearer on the earth. And then from man he creates woman and he created Woman, although he used material from man, that woman also bears the image of God. So both are image bearers, both are unique, and he created them male and female in order to come together in, 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 in marriage, uh, union and relationship, and, and then function that way. Now we know from 1 Corinthians 7, and we know from other passages in the Bible, that's not... Uh, that's, not, that's the norm, but that's not always the way that it works out. There are people who have the gift of singleness. There are people who, you know, who are uh, eunuchs for the kingdom. There are circumstances um, that, uh, that, that are created, but, but that's the norm, the way that, that's brought together. So the reason God hates the tearing apart of that is because it was designed that way. And so we looked at Proverbs 2, 16 through 17, and Romans 1, 18. Um, The adulteress is abandoning her companion, um, and divorce puts one spouse uh, in opposition to God. And then Romans 1, we we went over that um, uh, on, on Sunday morning. So really the, the passage we camped on was Malachi 2, 13 through 16. So what's going on in Malachi? What's important about, about Malachi? Um, well, verse 13, God, uh, the, the people wanted God to excuse their deviation from the covenant design. Now, now think about that. Is that not natural to, to humans in general? We want God to excuse our deviation. You know, every, all of you other deviants that have deviated, you're guilty. But I want God to excuse my deviation from the, the covenant design. Again, the exceptions where we want to go there. So, again, think of this as laying the foundation. Why was that an issue? Well, the, the second line there, they did not view marriage as God did. And they did not view its demise as he did. So if you don't view marriage the way that God does, you won't view its demise the way that God does. Um, He doesn't accept their offering because they did not look at his covenant the way that he does, and they were not repenting of their, their sin. And you can just see how all that goes together. God... His, his ways, his standards, and if you don't see it that way, then you're, you're going to try to excuse or want God to excuse the, the, the deviation of that. And then if you're doing that, you're not going to be repenting because you don't really see, see it the way that God does. I mean, the word confess, homo legeo, to say the same thing about your sin that God does. So confessing your sin is not just saying, God, forgive me, and fill in the blank. It's there's something going on in the heart that's coming out of the mouth. You're, you're saying the same thing about your sin that God does. Well, you can't say the same thing about your sin that God does unless you see your sin the same way that God sees it, which is what the Spirit of God does, right? The Spirit of God, one of His roles is to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgments. Convict the world, King James says, which simply means to convince. So, 
The role of the Spirit is to convince you that God is right and, and, and to reconcile you to God, reconcile your thinking to, to what God is saying. And, and if there is a deviation there, then let God be true, and even if every man is a, every man is a liar. So the main issue here is they're bringing their sacrifices, their offerings to the Lord, and God's not accepting it, and they're wanting God to accept it uh, and wanting to, to uh, provide a deviation. So verse 14, they ask for a reason. Why, why is this going on? And God answers. The wife is a companion by covenant, but they deal treacherously with her. So God views the breaking of this covenant as treachery. And here's what I want you to, to notice. And he refuses to accept the worship um, of his people. Now, in Christ Jesus, you are justified. Um, what a blessed doctrine, right? It is not your sin that, or, or lack thereof that keeps you in a state of relationship with God. It's Christ's righteousness alone that comes to you, it's credited to you, it's alien righteousness, it's, 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 it's righteousness from, from God that's credited to your account. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or credited unto him for righteousness. So Abraham's faith gave him access to God's righteousness and God then applied that righteousness to Abraham's account, even though Abraham's a liar, even though Abraham, you know, sets his wife up out of fear, even though Abraham goes with plan B and does the Hagar thing and creates all kinds of issues. It's God's righteousness that's credited. That's your justification. But while you are justified before God in Christ, and there's nothing that can ever change that, um, there can come sin in your life. And it can separate you in your fellowship with, with God. You've probably heard that described in a number of different ways. And it feels like a cloud that's, that's there. Your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that people have tried to, to describe that. And so here is God's covenant people. And he's not accepting their, their worship. There's a problem. There's a disconnect. They're still God's covenant people. Now, you could argue in Malachi, are these actually believing Jews or not? But, but let's just talk about the fact that, that, uh, that they're not accepting. God is not accepting the worship of, of the people. Why? Because they're, they're not Jews? Because they're not circumcised? Because they don't do outward things? No, because there's a problem in the heart. And so he, he shuts off the spout of heaven, if you will, in order to, to draw them to, to, the, to the fundamental issue. This is going on in their, in their hearts. So he refuses to accept the worship of, of his people. And you know, you've read Malachi. There's, there's, there are more problems than just the, you know, the, the treachery in divorce. I mean, they're bringing in their 25-year-old butterball turkeys and giving it you know, in the church uh, um, donation plate. They're three-legged lambs and whatever else. You know, let's bring in, let, yeah, let, yeah, that would be, we would want to eat that. Let's give that one to the church you know, or give that one to God. So there's all kinds of issues going on. This is one of them. In verse 16, he makes the statement that, that you, you know, God hates divorce and the one who covers his wrong. So when you're reading Malachi 
and you, you know the statement, God hates divorce, don't miss the underlying issue, the fundamental issue there that's going on in the heart. They were excusing their deviation. They, they were self-willed. They, they did not want to hear, as Matthew 18 would say. If you see your brother in sin, show them their fault. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. And that just simply means submission. They were refusing to submit. They were refusing to, to align themselves with God's standard of His creation order. And they were covering their wrong. They, 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 those two things almost always go together. If God says this, and, and that light is brought to bear in, in your life, then, then there is the moment that you have to repent. Oh, I'm out of order. I need to come back under the Lordship of Christ. And, and that's repentance. If you don't do that, then your tendency will be to, to, to say, well, it doesn't apply to me because of X, Y, and Z. You'll excuse it away. You'll, you'll try to create a deviation, and then you'll, you're, you'll, you are cover, trying to cover your wrong at that moment but you'll, you'll make even more excuses. And so that's what's going on in the, in the heart. Um, look at the, the top of page 260. Worship will not be accepted if you deviate from God's design or if you do not agree with God and repent of the deviation. Now, you know how gracious the Lord is. There's not a person in here that has not deviated <laughs> from God's design. And God ha- would have every right as a holy and just God to have sent the, the, those angels that stood with the flaming swords in front of the garden. He would have had every right to send those angels in the garden and slay Adam and Eve right there on the spot. But that same just and holy God is also a merciful and loving and kind and gracious God. And so he gives us as broken people uh, opportunities to repent. And he provides coverings for us and, and opportunities to, to cleanse our, our, ourself. And, and the one that God has cleansed, um, you know, let nobody call that person unclean. Um, and you can see that principle all the way through the Bible. Uh, even in, in Peter... Uh, to the Gentiles, um, what God has declared clean, let no man declare unclean. You know, uh, Rick Holland asked Boaz whenever we were over there this past week, and he's like, "Now you got to tell me. I know you're you still eat kosher, even though you you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But I mean, when you walk into a Gentile's house or a restaurant when they're frying bacon, does that not smell wonderful to you?" And Boaz says, "Of course it does. It smells great, but." But I don't base my eating decisions on, you know, whether something smells good or not. I base it on my conscience and, you know, and, and the Lord. So, okay, good answer that, uh, that that was there. But what do you do whenever there's been a deviation and you're aware of that deviation? You, you, you repent. Um, and if you have repented, then what God declares is clean it's unclean. Boaz also tried to argue with us, like, so I understand that you're free to eat whatever you want to eat, but, but wouldn't it be good as a Christian to just pick something and, and just say that, you know, this, according to the law of Moses, is something that God says is a, is a big deal, 
It was to teach you, and we're going we're, we're gonna to just honor that. We know it has nothing to do with salvation, but we're just going to go ahead and keep that you know, Sabbath day, or we're going to go ahead and just not eat that. And, I, and my answer was, well, yeah, Christians do that. It's called Lent, and we don't practice that. Uh, Catholics do that because um, why don't we do that? Because God says to Peter, what he has declared is now clean is clean. And um, my point to all this is if you have fallen to a deviation and you have repented of that and God has declared you clean, you are clean. Um, don't live in, in, in concern that you're in some perpetual state of, uh, of deviation. He's dealing with those who are looking for the deviation and are trying to cover the deviation. And in that case, if you're in that camp, worship will not be accepted unless you repent. And you see the same pattern of God not accepting worship in 1 Peter 3, 7. Um, it's, it's, it's written here. Let, let's read it. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the, the grace of life. And here's the worship part. So that your prayers will not be hindered. If you are deviating from God's design that your wife is created by God and equally bears God's image, although there are differences between men and women, God has created them that way. If you're trampling your wife, you're deviating from the way that God says that, that she is and that you are to care for her and protect her, then your worship is going to be hindered. Um, in this case, he uses prayer as, a, as an example for that. For that. And, and I highlighted this in, in my book, number two. God doesn't say he hates something that does not have massive consequences for his people. Gospel, uh, divorce is gospel disrupting. You could say, well, all sin is gospel disrupting, and it is. So again, we're living outside of the garden, and we'll get to the places where what do you do whenever this has happened, or what do you do if, if you know, I was the innocent party, or I didn't want this to happen, or what do you do if I did, and I just I did all of this, I did it, I'm like David, what do you do? We'll get there, but, but the point is, don't go to the exceptions first, you know, Put the, put the socket on the wrench, the torque wrench there, and tighten it down because your natural tendency is going to be to run to the exceptions and the culture is going to loosen that lug nut uh, and going to keep loosening that lug nut and, and the wheel is going to start wobbling. It's going to wobble and it is wobbling in the church and the culture and God wants you to tighten that down so it will, will run and then deal with what happens if you get a flat tire. Um, you can still drive the car, and God is gracious even in that to make provisions uh, for those circumstances. So that is the you know some of the foundational principles. But look at two: Jesus doesn't treat divorce or marital perversions casually. This is not just an Old Testament principle. You can see that in First First Peter three. But Jesus doesn't treat divorce or marital perversions casually. 
And the first place that he deals with it is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's two things. It's, a, it's an evangelistic sermon because it ends in chapter 7 with a call to repentance. There's two ways, two gates, uh, you know, two ways to, to build your house. You build it on the rock or the foundation of the Messiah, of, of His righteousness of Christ, or on the sand. And so when the, the rains of judgment come, it's going to wash you away if you're on the wrong foundation. You know, enter the straight gate in the narrow way. There's two, so it ends in an invitation. He brings us to the point. You, you either embrace what I say and, 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 and come to Christ, uh, because not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Or you, you keep on the path you're on, you're on. So it's evangelistic. starts with the Beatitudes. This is what a repentant heart looks like. This is what a kingdom heart looks like. Um, it's mourning over their sin. You know, you know the Beatitudes. He sets the sermon up by saying, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Not one jot or tittle. You know, not, not even the, the smallest point of the law is going to be disregarded. But then he sets it up. But unless your righteousness, think of righteousness, think of Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. Unless the righteousness that you need to get into heaven, except your righteousness, exceeds. The word is superabundantly exceeds. Unless your righteousness far exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a shocking statement for Jews who thought the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious and the righteous. Where does God say, or where does Jesus say in the rest of that message that that righteousness has to... to, uh, Let me say it this way. If he's saying the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, are, it, it, that it's insufficient to enter the kingdom, where do the scribes and the Pharisees typically express their righteousness? That's a question. The outside. And you see Jesus doing that exact thing. So he makes the statement. The righteousness that you need to get into heaven is not just outward righteousness. It's inward righteousness. It's righteousness of the heart. And then in the sermon, he says, You have heard, but I say unto you. So he deals with the law first, right? He deals with the Ten Commandments. And he he deals with adultery. You have heard if a person divorces a woman and gives a writ of divorcement, but I say unto you, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery where? Your heart. So he's applying the law. The law is not just applied. You're not just righteous if you look righteous and do righteous on the outside. God's law applies all the way down the heart. And then in chapter 5 or chapter 6, he talks about practicing the law. So he goes from dealing with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the law, not just outward law. The, the law is applied all the way down to the heart. And then he says... He talks about the practice of your righteousness in chapter 6. And he talks about giving alms and praying where people can hear you, right? Don't go out and blow a trumpet if you're fasting. You know, wash your face. You know, don't do the outward fasting. Do the inward part. Don't let people know about it. When you pray, go into the secret chamber. Don't, don't walk around and pray publicly. Why? 
they are practicing these ceremonial aspects of the law outwardly for people to see. And he's saying that's not where God looks, not just what other people know. God looks upon, upon the heart. So you're getting through that whole sermon and you're going, Ugh. well, when I sit under the law, the law is applied to my heart, I'm guilty. <laughs> and when I start looking at, yeah, I practice my righteousness, I mean, I kind of like it whenever people think that I'm righteous and I like it whenever they, they hear me pray. And, you know, I've got to fight sometimes against wanting to tell people some of the good things that I've done. And you come to the end of that sermon, I'm guilty. And that's the point of the sermon, which is why he sets up the invitation. And so the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal your need for Christ. And within that sermon, you have this section about verses 27 through 32 where Jesus speaks about the impurity of the heart that leads to destructive perversions of of marriage. Now, what are the, the, the two issues that we have whenever we're we're dealing with, with sin. One is, um, I just mentioned, we want to reduce sin by saying it's only outward, right? I want to reduce God's standard to something that I can manage, which is the, the outward, and Jesus corrects that. What is one of the other things we do to minimize our sin? Did you, huh? Blame shift. And, and, and where, do we, where do we blame shift? What did your mom say whenever you're pointing your finger at somebody else? You got three pointing back at yourself, right? That's what my mom told me. Be careful when you point the finger because you got, you got three more pointing, pointing back at, at yourself. One of the ways we blame shift is we look at the sin of others, right? We reduce sin by making it outward only, and Jesus forces us to see it applies to the heart. And then when we, we also reduce or try to uh, try to reduce the the power of of it, the power of the word, the conviction that's there, the the guilt that's there by looking in the mirror, by saying, well, but what about him? And that that's what Peter even did, right? And when he's restored, well, what about what about John? And the Greek there is really really specific. Jesus says, "You me follow." Uh, it doesn't make sense to us in English, but, but it's for emphasis. Basically, don't you worry about John. You, me, follow. That's the point. So whenever you're looking at, at your own sin, don't worry about what you're seeing in others, which is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does the, the, the log and the, the beam, the splinter that's there. Um, so we do two things, and he's dealing with that. Jesus says, A, if you're going to deal with the standard of righteousness, you can't just look at the actions or outward evidence. Because in this one, he's applying the law of adultery. Adultery begins as a perversion of the heart. And the self-righteous put a covering over their heart condition and acted as though they didn't pervert the marriage. Well, I have a writ of divorcement. I mean, the the scribes approved this. Um, well, you know, she did this or or he did that. Putting a covering over, not seeing the matter of the you know of the heart, 
And the heart condition is what makes you guilty before God. It's the heart thoughts and the intentions that Christ examines. Now again, I understand he's cranking the screws down and you're feeling it. He's going to tell you what happens if you've tried to do that yourself and that's a genuine, you've looked at the heart and you're not just doing the outward but the inward and you're not trying to justify and you've genuinely repented, then 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 God is has a provision for the hardness of heart that's there. But right now, he's tightening the lug nut so the wheel doesn't come off. And he's also pointing out if your wheel's wobbling and you think it's running straight. Christ explains in verses 29 through 30 how severely you must treat the heart condition. He's saying that the lust of your heart will lead you to eternal damnation. It's that serious. It will blind you and send you to eternity without without Christ. In verses 31 through 32, Jesus is teaching in this passage the heart of divorce, which is adultery. Now, whenever you hear the word lust and you hear adultery, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? How would you how do you categorize that? What 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 comes to your mind? Lust and adultery. Sex. That's exactly right. Is Jesus only talking about sex here? No. Lust means desire, and it's desiring something, anything, that could be sex, and a lot of times sex is involved. Um, But it could be a desire for something that God has forbidden. Um, And it's the matter of the heart that's there. There are people who leave their spouse, and it has nothing to do with sex. Um, I, I remember, this is a secular example, but I, but I remember um, as an unbeliever being dumbfounded that Prince Charles left Princess Diana, a young, beautiful princess, for Camille, who was a woman much older and, quite frankly, a lot less attractive. And I thought, why in the world would he do that? And at his own admission, he said that he enjoyed Camille's company and the fact that she listened to him and she was intelligent and he could, they had stuff in common and they could carry on our conversation. And it had nothing to do with beauty and it had nothing to do with sex. It was a need and a desire and somebody else was, was meeting that. So don't truncate this issue. Don't leave out that sex could be involved. But, but as Mark has even been teaching in family life, you know, uh, intimacy is, you know, begins relationally, not just physically. And so you have, to, you have to remember that. A third party in a marriage is a parasite. But a parasite can't, the parasite might be there. And it might try to enter the body, but, but a parasite can't typically take hold in a, in a healthy body. A parasite is, infiltrates and remains and thrives in an unhealthy body. There's usually another, another issue going on. And so if your marriage is healthy, then you're going to be less likely to fall to whatever that lust might be, whether it's your wife's frigid or you, you, know, you don't get some other need that's, that's met. And... Trust me, Satan will have somebody out there that will perfectly fit whatever need and desire you think that you're lacking in your marriage. 
Um, that can be in your workplace. It can be in your church. It can be in your, your class. It can be any number of places. So Christ explains how severely you must treat that, that heart condition. Um, uh, turn to James 4.4. 4. Somebody read James 4.4 4 for me. Now, Jesus, or James, uses the term adultery there. And is he talking about sex in that case? Specifically defines it, right? Yeah, defines it as friendship with the world. Um, so he's applying it metaphorically to, to leaving and deviating from, from the covenant, being influenced by, by the world. And Jesus is teaching in 31 and 32 the heart of uh, divorce, which is which is adultery, and he, then he notes this passage does not teach all of the nuances of divorce and remarriage. There's a note in verse one: this passage has often been used incorrectly by the church to keep people in a state of singleness, and one would have to ignore First Corinthians seven to hold the view that remarriage was not possible. In that case, Paul himself would have been violating Christ's teaching. So when you put the, the wheel on, you tighten the lug nuts down, you use God's wrench, you make sure that wheel's tight, but you're living outside of the garden, and the wheel can come off. You can get a flat tire in this world, and God then doesn't leave the car along the side of the road. He, puts a, he changes it. I was going to say puts a spare on, but I don't want you to think that if you're in a remarried situation <laughs> that you're, you're, your wife's a spare tire. It's just the point is, while that analogy falls apart, if you repent and you deal with whatever the issue is, or you are the innocent party in that situation, you've got to deal with your own heart and then repent of whatever the sin was in your own heart and then, and then apply 1 Corinthians 7 and otherwise. So verse 31, the perpetrator, the guilty, the offender, is the one in, in Matthew... Five, desiring the divorce without biblical cause or justification. So Christ cites Deuteronomy 24 to show that, that adultery, deviation from God's design, is at the heart of divorce. And behind that adultery is, is a lust, is a desire that's, that's unfulfilled and a violation of God's design for marriage. And in those days, Jews were giving certificates uh, of divorce to those who appeared righteous. Again, the outward part. One of the, 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 one of the things, somebody asked MacArthur, this is not something that I've heard him say publicly, but somebody asked MacArthur in an elder meeting one time, is there anything that you wish God was more clear about? You know, that's... In, in, in Scripture, any, any area or, or topic. He paused for a minute. And you know John's view of, of 
Scripture, so it's completely sufficient. He believes in the sufficiency of Scripture. So this is just somebody asking a question. And he said, well, you know, Scripture's perfect, it's, it's sufficient, it's complete. But if there's one thing that I wish I understood better, it would be applying the whole divorce and remarriage thing. Because, not because God's unclear, but because I can't always see and the elders can't always know what's been going on in the background. We don't have the ability to look upon the heart. And we're presented with information, and then we're, we're called to make a functional judgment based on the information that you have. But the elders are always saying it's based on what we see, based on what we understand, and there are certain things that you may not understand. So the elders here want to be very judicious and very careful and length of time. And, and you may even go through that process and come to the end and go, I don't know. That's just not information that God's given us. Who's right, who's wrong, who's the perpetrator, who's not. And almost all the time, there's not a, you know, oh, um, you know, St. Mary over here who never did anything wrong in her marriage, you know, and evil John over here did everything wrong. So it's very clear, here's the perpetrator and, and here's not. And, and the elders are often put in situations, you know, like, like that. What do you do? You, you go back to the, to the wheel and you describe it. And you call people to repentance, you call people to the word, and then you look to see who's, who's willing to submit. And then you watch their submission over a period of time, a long period of time sometimes. Because people can submit for a month or so, and that will fall apart after six months. So the perpetrator, the guilty offender, is the one desiring the divorce without biblical cause of justification. And so... The adultery of their heart, the wanting to deviate because of some unfulfilled desire about me. And sometimes their ones appear one way and it turns out to be another way. And the Jews' perversion included almost any reason. Again, some are plain. And the only clause in the law from Deuteronomy 24 was for impurity or sexual sin. So in that passage, the perpetrator makes her a covenant violator, an adulterer, because he wants out of the marriage. His lust or his offense makes him the initiator. And Jesus' point is not that the innocent party cannot remarry. Deuteronomy 24 is clear. The perpetrator or the offender causing the divorce is the one who is stained and not permitted to be to be remarried. So the point of Matthew Deuteronomy 24 is not to create a loophole for whatever you want to put in there. It's, it's, to, it's to protect somebody, to protect somebody who wants to keep the covenant when somebody else is refusing to keep the, the covenant. Matthew 19, 1 through 9, Jesus is then challenged about all of his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is not just a one setting. I think he preached it all in one setting. But this is the, the gospel of the kingdom. This is the message that he's going around sharing all around Galilee. So the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was teaching about divorce, about marriage, about adultery, about the law. And so they set him up in Matthew 19 and try to challenge him. 
In Matthew 19, 1 through 9, I'm not asking you to read these because I think you know these passages and I think we went over them before. Jesus dealt with the Pharisees who were trying to make their own rules and regulations. And they were testing Jesus to catch him in some nuance of the law in an inconsistency. And so they try to pit the Lord against Moses whenever Moses got his words from the Lord to begin with. And so Christ creates a framework to teach by tracing marriage back to God's original and perfect design. So here is Jesus doing exactly what we're doing, going back to Genesis 1. And the scripture is clear that man leaves father and mother for a godly marriage, not for a perversion of God's design. The design is rooted in how God created them, male and female. This is one of the greatest arguments against homosexual relationships and same-sex marriage. The design of the family has the man leaving and cleaving in a one-flesh union. There is no other design for the family. This is the groundwork laid by Jesus before answering the question about an exception. And so the Pharisees think they've trapped the Lord by bringing up Moses, the patriarch of the law. Is Christ going to wrangle with Moses from Deuteronomy 24, 1-4? And Christ shows them very quickly that God does not excuse the one who violates the one flesh union. And that's the issue. They're wanting, they're saying, we are righteous, we, we, we have not violated the law. And he is showing the, that there is somebody in that scenario that's violating the, the law. But it's not the person who's the innocent party. And that innocent party is not to, it's not to lock them up where they can never remarry. It's who's the perpetrator, who has the issue of the heart. And so Jesus says, from the beginning it has not been that way. And he reminded them that God allowed divorce for the Israelites because of the hardness of their heart, because of their sin. Now, don't misunderstand that. He's not saying, well, because you're sinners and you're going to do this, then, then it's okay. He's not saying that. He's saying someone in that marriage is going to harden their heart and the, and the other person is then going to be left unprotected from the hard-hearted person. And so the provision is the law in the law is to protect not the hard-hearted person. That person's guilty. And, and they will not escape their, their guilt. It's to protect the innocent one who is now suffering because of the hard-hearted person, which is the point of Deuteronomy 24. So divorce is not a loophole. One person is going to harden the heart, and the other person is going to be left unprotected. So Deuteronomy 24 is a provision in the law. It doesn't condone um, the practice. It it provides a, a gracious, merciful provision for the person, in most cases, the woman who was left unprotected. And so Jesus provides a clear statement there about immorality, pornea. This word always means sexual relations outside of the one flesh union. It's not lust or, or cravings. Lust leads to sexual sin, as Christ states in Matthew 5, 28. And Jesus teaches that the sin begins in the heart. Adultery in the mind is not the same or has the same consequence as physical adultery. Lust in the heart is still sin and should be properly confessed and dealt with at that level. Now, why is that in there? What's... what? 
where can this get that where can this get messed up? Um, what did you hear? What do you hear whenever you you read uh, G uh, one, two, and three? There, what nuance is he making? He's saying lust in the heart's no big deal. He's saying the same thing Jesus is saying that the law applies all. You're guilty in the heart. But he's also saying being guilty in the heart is not equated to being guilty in the heart and being guilty externally. Murder begins with anger, and anger's in the heart. But being angry with somebody, cut me off, you dirty rat, you know, I'd like to run you off the road. Okay, that's sin. You're guilty before God. Actually taking the car and doing road rage and running them off the road, that's additional sin. And that's obviously more serious. So applying this in in marriage relationships, you will have someone uh, a lot of times saying, well, usually a woman, I caught my husband looking at pornography. Therefore, he's guilty of adultery. Therefore, I'm able to divorce him. And in reality, what she's using most of the time is I don't want to be in this marriage anyway because probably the guy's a jerk and I want out and this is a convenient way to, to get out rather than actually dealing with her own heart and his heart. But is looking at pornography sinful? You better believe it. Is it a violation of your covenant? You better believe it. You're looking upon another woman and you shouldn't. You're guilty before God. But that's not equated with actually finding a prostitute. And acting on that. So you got to be careful there because you don't want to reduce lust in the heart to a you know, lesser level, but you don't want to fall into the world's trap that says, well, you know, homosexuality is the same as, as you know, being addicted to chocolate, you know, or gluttony. This is what the world does. It tries to reduce the, the levels of, of the law and how it's applied by, by trying to level the playing field and saying, well, you know, who are you? You, 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 you? you overeat, you, you know, do whatever, and therefore my sin is, you know, is, is okay. So adultery in the mind is not the same or has the same consequence as physical adultery, but that's where physical adultery starts. It starts in the heart. It starts with a lust and a craving and a desire, and then that craving and desire is acted upon in your imaginations, and then those imaginations turn into actually looking at something with your eyes. And then if you do that long enough, you're going to end up acting on those things. There's a progression that's there. So deal with it severely. Cut it off. You know, pluck out your eye. Do whatever you have to do. But lust in the heart is still sin and should be properly confessed and dealt with at that level. So that's the review of... The wheel. Now, I understand the wheel is on there and the lug nuts are, are, are really tight. And so next week we're going to look at the first biblical ground, immorality and abandonment. And then we'll deal with the questions. What comments do you have about this morning? Yeah.
Mm. That's good. Go back to your first statement. How do you see that playing out? Which is why Jesus goes there and why he uses that to show us that we're guilty and we're locked up under the law and there's none that can reach that righteousness. So going back to Matthew, except your righteousness exceeds, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. After you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you should be sitting there going, I'm not going to the kingdom of heaven. I have a need that I can't meet. And now you're ready to hear the Messiah who is able to meet that need and provide you righteousness. That Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's good. That's good. Yeah. I think that what I'm sorry. Yeah, I just found that that what he said that that was. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a struggle I think that we all have. We can we and we do remember those things. We don't have it at least on our brain. Yeah, he makes a again a point an important nuance there, which is you are fallen, and you 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 do have lust in your heart. So what? You look at the progression in James. It talks about where does sin come from? It originates in the desires of your heart. Your heart is a fallen heart. So you are going to have sinful or wicked thoughts. But when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. So there's a gestation period. And what Steve's talking about is in the gestation period, cut it off before it actually conceives and turns into sin. So when you're tempted, it's not the same. Being tempted is not the same as actually committing sin. But in that temptation that's coming from the sinful heart, that's whenever you cut it off and whenever you deal with it. Because if you don't, you're going to have a really ugly baby. Sin brings forth death. And so when lust conceives, it brings 
for sin, and sin ends in separation, you know, from from God. And so, um, I, I heard it described whenever I was a brand new believer that you know, you let those those thoughts fly through your mind like a bird in coming in one side of your mind and just allow it to keep right on traveling. Uh, don't let it make a nest. When you allow that bird to make a nest in your head, then that's whenever you're, you're your problem. So you are going to be tempted. Um, be careful. Temptation uh, is part of the fall. Okay, It's part of your iniquity and your depravity. Before the fall, Adam looked upon his naked woman and did not think sinful things because he was innocent and perfect. After the fall, now he's broken and now he sees her and has temptation. So temptation is not the same as acting on sin, but it originates from our fallen nature. Um, But just because you're tempted... Doesn't it's not equated with acting on it. So that's where you actually deal with those issues. Let me give you another nuance. Al Mohler helped me years ago. I was just talking to Clay and, and Tim about this yesterday. There's a difference between admiring the beauty of someone and then turning that into a sinful desire. Now, what do I mean by that? You admire creation. You admire God's image in creation, His creative power, the beauty that's there. And so noticing a woman, even a woman that's not your wife, noticing beauty is not sinful. You've got to be very careful because there's a fine line between noticing beauty and then saying, that's beautiful, and I want it for my own desires. That's whenever it turns into to lust. And so, um, you know, I'll have guys say, "Oh, I'm noticing, you know, all these women, and they're, you know, they're so beautiful." Well, what exactly are you you noticing, and what are you doing with that? You can get a hyper conscience, you know, as well. So dealing with the fundamental issue of lust, which is I have a desire and I want that and I'm going to take it for myself, um, is where the, the problem comes from, a desire that comes from within. So deal with that on the, you know, on the temptation level. Yeah. So uh, you can turn to James 4. You could have went put off and put on. Um, you got to deal with it. You can't. What is Jesus saying whenever he... Um, says cut it off you know pluck out the eye and cut it off he's you know the principle that he's giving is you have to deal with that radically so mark just said um god's not going to stop you from the practice of sin how did you say that yeah not to practice so just praying and saying you know oh god protect me from this desire that's a good place to start but then then you go sit down at your computer and you open yourself up from that. That's dumb. 
So the, doing whatever you have to do to remove yourself from the, from the temptation, starting in, in the heart. But look at what James you know, says here in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you not know that Scripture speaks with no purpose? He jealously desires... Um, Jealousy desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the orientation of the heart is, is Lord, I need grace, and he gives grace to the humble. The humble is somebody who acknowledges that. Submit, therefore, to God. So that would be the first thing I would say. Submit your heart to God. You acknowledge that to God, and you tell God, I have this desire, and then you resist. You resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, don't obviously that's not you don't want to personify the the devil in the you know in your computer. But there's the idea of resist. So, how would you resist after you submit? How how would you resist in that situation? How you resist the acting on that on that desire? Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and He will He will exalt you. So if you put that whole thing together, it starts with humility you know, of the heart um, and submission to God and then resistance, uh, which mean, could mean tangibly. You don't go wherever. You don't go be alone. You don't... Um, you submit yourself to somebody else. Tell somebody, I have had this situation. That's the humility part, and I'm feeling it right now, and I, I don't want to do that. So um, there's a number of practical ways that, that you could you could apply. Go back to James chapter 1. I know you're running over time here, but... Um, Verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord he promised, uh, he promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, but he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And so, again, that progression. So that temptation to look at the pornography and the desire is coming from within, and there's a gestation period. And that's where you have to intervene because when lust is conceived, now you're going to put yourself in a position to act on it. It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above and coming down from the Father. Um, so the point of James is saying God's not the one who tempts. God's the one who gives good gifts. Where does temptation come from? It, you know, it comes from, comes from within. Um, longer term, you have to put off whatever that sinful practice is and you have to put on. So you have to replace that practice with, you know, with a, with a God-honoring practice. All right, you can read ahead in 262, 263, and uh, write down some questions that you might have. Um, 
read ahead and read about immorality and abandonment. Read the, the, the questions to anticipate. There are four of them there. Write down the ones that aren't listed, and we'll just we'll go one by one and, and, and deal with them. Okay? Father, we love you. We pray you'll help us today to honor you, to not deviate from your word and how you've created things. Father, when we're tempted to do that, or even when we do, remind us that you are merciful and you um, allow repentance. And what you've declared clean is clean. We're cleansed by the blood of Christ. So help us even today to point others to that place. There are broken people in the world who have fallen to sin and uh, you can cleanse them. And you have cleansed us. So keep us even this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.